Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another episode of All Crime No Cattle. I'm Erin, and with us today, our presenter, the one and only Detective Shea Butter, the birthday boy. Yes. Who is also sick because so I sick. gave him some kind of cold. Sorry. You, you gave me a plague from hell is what you gave me. It's it's horrible. Yeah. It's not very good. And we were just sick like a month or two ago. Yes. I think this podcast is slowly killing us. I think so. Yeah. It's destroying our immune system. It's destroying our souls a little bit. That's okay. We, it's do, it all all for, we do it all for you guys. It's all worth it, right? <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to sound a little bassy today. We had a little corrections corral, didn't we? Oh, God. Corrections corral. Is that what we're calling yeah. it? Yeah. Well, towards the end of last episode, um, Shay disputed what I was saying in that both Shiner and Lone Star have been around for a million years. And... Thank you, Jimmy, our good friend, Jimmy, who um, he Facebook uh, messages us all the time. He's this really cool uh, truck driver guy who listens to us a lot in his cab. And um, he reminded me to let you know that, yes, indeed, you are incorrect. Lone Star Beer was first started in 1884. Is that right? That's correct. And Shiner in 1909. So both of them were way older than the case. So they should have been drinking Lone Star or Shiner. Yeah. And somebody, somebody, uh, what, tweeted us or Instagrammed us a picture of a bar back in the turn of the century oh, yeah. with a Schweppes beer. No, Schweppes is a... Oh, that's a soda. Soda, yeah. It was like Schleps or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it was all you can drink and it was just a bunch of Texans hanging out outside it's of like a bar. off branch Yeah. Oh, God. And then we also forgot to bring up Pearl, which is a really old Texas beer uh, that was around back then. Anyways, that was our beer roundup for mistakes on beer knowledge. Yes, thank you, Jimmy, again for reminding me to um, publicly shame Shay for his lack of knowledge on Texas beers. I'm so sorry, Texas beer snobs. You can shame me in the comments. I deserve it. You do. All right. Well, last episode was really hard. Um, it was hard for us. and I'm sure it was hard to listen to. This episode is going to be a little bit more of the same. So um, I'm ready, if you are, to go ahead and get started. 
Okay, so uh, a couple of updates on sources for this episode. I'm going to add a couple of sources to our source list. So a really great investigative uh, report series that's actually on YouTube that you can find is called Free to Kill, and it's done by Robert Riggs from Channel 8 FAA News in Dallas. And he actually won a Pulitzer for his coverage of this whole debacle from the 80s all the way up into 1998. So if you want really good snapshot of what everybody was going through during the time, go watch these hours of investigative journalist reports that he's put together. It's really cool. I haven't been able to watch all of them, but they're really interesting. I also used several articles from the Austin Statesman. I used court records, court documents from 1992 to 1998. I also, again, cited Ken Anderson's crime in Texas, as well as Gary M. Laverne's Bad Boy of Rosebud. So last time we left off... We had a man who was 22 years old who murdered three young teenagers uh, who were hanging out in Everman, Texas, terribly, brutally raped one of them multiple times and ended up killing them as well. Uh, he goes to prison and is put on death row in 1966. So in October of 1989, the parole board of the Texas prison system lets Kenneth Allen McDuff back out on the streets. He returns to his hometown of Rosebud. Everybody freaks out. Everybody starts securing the town and weaponing up and getting dogs and such. And, you know, everybody's just kind of laying in wait, waiting for the next uh, shoe to drop, waiting for Kenneth Allen McDuff to do something else really horrible. Well, it doesn't actually take that long because in July of 1990, less than a year after his release, Kenneth Allen McDuff is arrested for pulling a knife on some black teenagers. Now, McDuff was known around the town by plenty of people as an intense racist. One particular evening, this was demonstrated pretty dramatically as he was walking down Main Street in downtown Rosebud and some young black kids are walking towards him and he takes the chance to just start blurting out some racial slurs, accosting them. He eventually escalates the situation by pulling a knife on the young teenagers. And by the end of the night, police have scooped him up and have him in jail. And he has broken several parole violations, brandishing a weapon, uh, threatening people. And he is headed back to prison. And everybody in the town once more rejoices, right? Because they're thinking, hey, he slipped up. It could have been way worse. He's going back to yeah, prison. Yeah, at least he didn't kill anybody. He's going to go back into prison where he belongs. Yeah. Hopefully he'll stay there. Exactly. I'd like to note a popular victim theory during the this time period that happens right at this point. A body was discovered a few months right before he pulls the knife on these young black teenagers. The body of a 31-year-old Serafia Parker was discovered on October 14, 1989 in Temple, Texas. It was 48 miles south of Waco along the I-35 corridor. McDuff never was charged with this crime, but it is highly suspected that he was involved. And the Emmy reports that were done on the body put the time of death just a few days after McDuff would have been released from prison and spent a few days on his way back up the I-35 corridor headed to Rosebud. So it's possible that Kenneth Allen McDuff actually did commit a murder right before he threatened these teens. And what is it about this murder that makes them think that it was done by McDuff? When the body was found, there were several things that we're going to see in the next few crime scenes that I'm going to talk about. And so hold on to that thought. Oh, okay, and we'll so there's discuss some correlations. Okay. Yes. He may or may not have committed this murder on his way back to his hometown. He pulls a knife on these young black teenagers. He heads back to prison. 
So with Macduff back in prison for yet another seemingly inescapable term, everybody thought once and for all, there'll be peace in Rosebud and we can go back to our quiet lives. That was until Macduff was released yet again on what, Aaron? On good uh, behavior. Good behavior and on parole. Thanks to the massive prison overcrowding issues in an inept Texas parole board. Regarding the Texas prison system, as well as the state of the parole board during this time period, investigative reporter Robert Riggs, who I mentioned earlier, said this. It made no difference if you violated your parole, if you violated probation, anything, or if you committed a very serious crime. You weren't going to do much time, period. In early 1991, McDuff is out of prison. He enrolls in the Texas State Technical College in Waco, Texas. McDuff told Gary Laverne in, in several interviews that during this time period when he was released, he wanted to become a changed man. He wanted to earn money legitimately. He wanted to go to school for his future. Blech. Oh, sure. Yeah. His classes would focus on technical studies, machining, drafting. From his course list, it looked like McDuff was on his way to becoming a machinist. A, a good living, a good position. You can make a lot of money as a machinist. While attending school, he got a job at a local convenience store. It was called the Quick Pack. The Quick Pack was uh, just in town in Waco, Texas, and he worked as a cashier while he was there. Things sounded like perhaps they could change for McDuff. You know, maybe he was on the up and up. He had a good career plan. He had his school studies that were going pretty well. He had a job. You know, maybe he was rehabilitated. Some people even started to have hope around town. Of course. Mm. Of course. <laughs> I'm like, not me. <laughs> yeah. Of course, his job would be short-lived, as he would quit only a month after he was hired. By the summer of 1991, now remember, I'll say this, Remember, keep the quick pack in mind. It's going to come back. By the summer of 1991, his old habits had returned. McDuff began hanging out in an area of Waco called, quote, The Cut. This is an area that was known for its abundance of crime, its dark dive bars, drug deals, and abundance of sex workers. It was a criminal hotbed of Waco, Texas during the early 90s. One of the reasons Kenneth Allen McDuff frequented this area was the fact that he was using, buying, and dealing drugs. This, of course, was a blatant violation of his parole. Yet again, his overworked parole officer failed to register these many violations and conduct the proper procedures, including drug tests, some of which he in fact failed but were never filed, that would have returned McDuff to prison for good. You're kidding me. No. Mc How is Kenneth Allen McDuff like the luckiest man who's ever lived? Dude, seriously. Like, how did, did he ever buy a lottery ticket? And how did he not win? Right? It's just so infuriating to know what he was able to get away with. He, I mean, he should have never been out of prison to begin with. And yet, he, and he keeps pushing his luck, keeps doing all of these horrible things that should get him sent back for good. And yet, as we can see, the problem with the Texas prison system and the judicial system as a whole, we're not getting that. And you can see the difference from the prison system when your case was, where it was like overcorrection and like much harsher sentences and no yeah, leniency. Absolutely. Now I mean, it's, it's like George Rivas was saying how he got more time than murderers do, even though he was just a serial robber. Yeah. And, you know, he was basically in prison for the rest of his life, where Kenneth Allen McDuff in the 60s, we see him just immediately get off. So we are seeing these really huge structural changes within the Texas prison system just between my series and this series. But, you know, we're obviously seeing them in reverse. And we're also seeing there are extremes of the same system 
And not, neither one of those extremes is the way to approach crime and certainly not the way to protect the rest of us, which is kind of the whole point. Yeah, exactly. So Macduff doesn't return to prison. He's given yet another crack to slither through. And this allows him to conduct several hobbies because he has some at this time. Unfortunately, they involve heavy drinking, crack cocaine, and violent sex. With no proper supervision by his parole officer, Macduff was free to sate his large appetite for destruction. Bill Johnson, a federal prosecutor who will become very important in Macduff's case later on, uh, he believed that at this point, Macduff was laying the foundation and setting uh, the later coursework that would involve his sexual sadism. In an interview with Bill Johnston, he said the following, quote, He got his thrills from causing pain and terror in the cut of Waco, Texas. Women were less than human to him. They were something to be used and to be used up, Macduff said. And unfortunately, investigators would find out all too late that Macduff had been traveling as far as Dallas, Austin, Texas to commit other crimes. A former cellmate of Macduff did an interview with investigative reporter Robert Riggs only after agreeing to have his identity and voice hidden. About Macduff, he had this to say. He gets high on killing. He said he has buried many women in shallow graves near Waco, Texas. He's very sadistic and thrives on hurting people. The more people he kills, the more enjoyment he seems to get out of it. He told me he'll take a woman from anywhere. Fort Worth, Harry Hines, uh, meaning a street which is in Dallas, and definitely in Waco. If you put yourself in the wrong position, he thinks he can get away with it, he'll take you. He'll take you without thinking about it twice. So the reason why I'm telling you guys all of this information up front is Kenneth Allen McDuff has changed since he was in prison. When he first went in, he made a huge mistake by killing, like we said, three all-American children. You know, the law came down on him pretty hard. And now we can see that Kenneth Allen McDuff has been talking to, working on his MO, evolving his procedure of how he's going to go about his next set of crimes in prison. And he's been talking to other prison inmates about it. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. I mean, that's what a lot of people say is that prison makes you a better criminal. It uh -huh. teaches you ways, you know, what can I do to not get back here again? Exactly. And I think the 20 years that he's been in prison, we can see was a, probably a very good lesson at how to not get caught. What do I need to do to continue murdering and never be back here again? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if Serafia Parker was actually killed by Kenneth Allen McDuff. That happened days after he got out of prison and her body wasn't found until months later. And it wasn't actually attributed to Kenneth Allen McDuff until years and years later. Mm -hmm. So what I'm talking about and what I'm kind of laying out and describing is kind of this perfect storm situation that's developing for Kenneth Allen McDuff. You've got this district in Waco that is got a ton of sex work and drugs and he's peddling drugs and it's rife with crime and these like dark dive bars. And it's set up to where if you were like the hunter, you know, if you were like hunting deer, you would set out like a feeder. His corn would be that he would fill the feeder with would be the drugs. And this is what a lot of investigators believe. A lot of, of people that have profiled Kenneth Allen McDuff is that he was a user, he was an abuser of drugs, but he also used them as commodities and as bait for some of his victims. So in October of 1991, city police officers had a routine roadblock set up outside of Waco, Texas. 
this was a known area for people to uh, drive to and and, you know, get their drink on and have a party, you know, and maybe do some drugs and then take off around other central Texas and surrounding towns to go home. So a lot of times Waco City Police would set up roadblocks outside of Waco to catch people drunk driving you know, doing crime, all that kind of thing. Well, they have their big line of of cars sitting at the roadblock, and an officer is kind of walking down the line of cars, inspecting everything and seeing what's going on, seeing if he sees any telltale signs of people using or too drunk, so on and so forth. Well, as the officer approached a truck at approximately about 50 feet away, he saw a woman who looked as though she was struggling. She was fighting with the driver of the truck, And she was kicking and screaming and actually was cracking the windshield with her feet as she struck it. The officer believed that the woman was trying to escape by kicking the windshield out. And he thought that he could see that her hands were tied together because her two hands were together as she was struggling. Oh, God. Yeah. And this reminds me of the Robert Ben Rhodes situation, obviously, that we we covered uh, early on in the Lone Star Lunatic series. In a report by U.S. Marshals, the driver saw the police officer, stepped on the gas pedal, drove through the uh, wrong way oncoming traffic, and crashed through the roadblock. The police gave chase, but the driver was able to evade police by turning off his headlights and traveling the wrong way down several one-way streets. Eventually, police lost track of the vehicle, and it was never seen again. A lot of investigators think that Kenneth Allen McDuff was the driver, He fits the description, and we'll see some more details on this later on. But most likely what he did was turn off on one of these old, dark country roads and turn his headlights off, and police went right by. The woman was later linked by description and by clothing that she was wearing to a missing woman from Waco, Texas. Her name was Brenda Thompson. She was a known sex worker who frequented the area known as The Cut. I'm not exactly sure how old Brenda Thompson was at this time. I've looked and done some digging and I can't really find her age. If anyone can find it, please let me know in the comments. But she looks like she's in her late 40s, early 50s. I have a theory about why Kenneth Allen McDuff chose her. And I'm thinking it's because she wasn't really well liked by other sex workers in town. And she was kind of like struggling to uh, do her job as a sex worker in the cut. She was a known drug user and she was always trying to get, you know, her her next hit to survive. And that's exactly what Kenneth Allen McDuff's M.O. is. And I think what we're talking about here is his first foray into his new M.O. as a serial killer. And he specifically picked out Brenda because not a lot of people cared about her. She didn't have a lot of family. And police, we can see from the following days after this missing person report was filed by just an acquaintance of Brenda Thompson, that they just wrote it off as she left town and they didn't really care. Yeah. So already seeking out the most vulnerable person within a already vulnerable population. Exactly. And I think that that was very calculated by him. He's like, I'm going to try out these new tactics. I'm not going to go after some young kids that everybody's going to care about. And I'm going to I'm going to try this litmus test and we're going to move forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like a a lot of serial killers do, especially the ones that have huge numbers to them. Who do they target? They usually target sex workers. Yep. Transient people, homeless people. Yeah, definitely. Well, just a few days after this, and we're talking about less than a week, 17 year old sex worker named Regina Deanne Moore 
was last seen in a car with the Kenneth Allen McDuff in the cut. She goes missing as well. So he was actually positively identified in this situation. Yes. Okay. Witnesses reported seeing the two having an argument at a Waco motel. And shortly thereafter, the pair of them drove off in Kenneth Allen McDuff's pickup truck, which was positively identified by the same description as the pickup that ran the roadblock. Hmm. Regina worked the same streets that Brenda Thompson did. However, she was so much younger. And I've also seen reports that, you know, she had mental conditions and that, you know, she may she may or may not have been on the spectrum to some degree, but that she was also a drug user. And he's peddling crack and methamphetamines, you know, it falls right into what he's looking for as a predator. Mm -hmm. So you would think at this point that Waco police in conjunction with U.S. Marshals, would have questioned McDuff. Yeah, I mean, he's clearly been connected to two different missing women now, and he has a history of killing people. Yes, but from all accounts, it looks like they never actually did look that hard into McDuff, and he slipped away yet again. In fact, many people came forward and volunteered McDuff as a potential person of interest, and it doesn't look like it went anywhere. So what did they say about Regina this time? Was it the same thing? Oh, she was a sex burger, so she probably just skipped town. Exactly. End of story. Hmm. And you know, that that's the problem is that at this time period in Waco, there's a lot of sex workers that disappeared. You know, Kenneth Allen McDuff is not the only predator who's been released, not the only rapist, not the only sexual sadist, not the only murderer who's been released recently, who is active in this area. And I've actually come across a lot of other interesting individuals for Waco, Texas and The Cut by researching all of this material. So they have an ongoing problem, the city police of Waco. They have a lot of open cases. And for them, it it really benefits them to close a case by just saying, oh, well, they just moved away. They just left. Oh, yeah, of course. And this is something I mean, this is a national and probably international problem. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's especially, you know, worse the, the farther back in time you go. Yeah. But for Texas, specifically during this time period that we're talking about where everybody's getting paroled, this oh, is, sure. This is a very active area for this type of crime. Yeah. So Robert Riggs referred to the police in this particular situation, quote, they never fully checked him out. He was always in the grasp of police who, through lousy police work, always let him go somehow. On to another victim, Kenneth Allen McDuff would go. We're going to move forward to Sunday, December 29th, 1991. Sorry. So even before this, I'm assuming this is an ex- victim you're moving on to. So already we're, what, not even two years out of him being released, and we already have him connected to possibly three different women that he's murdered, correct? Yes, that is correct. Okay. Wow. And the next thing that we're going to talk about is the first misstep by Kenneth Ellen McDuff. And that's on Sunday, December 29th, 1991. McDuff and one of his friends, Alva Hank Worley, headed down to Austin in a tan-colored Thunderbird. Worley was a high school dropout. You're going to see a lot of similarities and comparisons to uh, Roy Dale Green from part one of the Broomstick Killer series. He had a bunch of smaller convictions on his record, but he was also known to be a drinking buddy of McDuff on occasion. He was also linked to several other small petty crimes with McDuff. Meanwhile, a woman named Colleen Reed was out running errands that evening in Austin, Texas. She was a 28-year-old accountant who worked in Austin and was a native of Louisiana. She had moved to Austin for a job in accounting. Robert Riggs describes her as a bright woman who was beloved by her co-workers, her family, and who had many friends. 
During the day, Colleen hadn't been feeling well. She took a nap and she woke up that evening. But after realizing that she hadn't dropped off some money that she needed to put in the bank, she picked up a few things from the grocery store and headed over to a bank branch. She dropped off her money and then she thought to herself, my car is disgusting. So she decided, I'm going to go to a car wash and I'm going to wash my car. And that's exactly what she did. She went to one of these like multiple bank car washes that we have here. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have one right around the corner that we're always making fun of uh, because it always looks like some kind of seedy activity is happening at that car wash. She goes over and she starts washing her car at the car wash. However, she didn't realize that McDuff and his friend Alva Hank Worley are lying in wait at the car wash. They had been casing the area, hoping that someone like Colleen would turn up. And as she is washing her car, Macduff pulled his tan Thunderbird around behind her car wash slot. He slips out and he heads towards Colleen. Macduff jumps out, surprises Colleen. He attacks her. He grabs her from behind and grabs her throat with his hand, choking her and begins hauling her back to his tan Thunderbird. Colleen fights back, though, and she's able to get free enough to scream out for help. And uh, her screams are actually heard all the way across the street by neighbors. And these neighbors hear a woman screaming, rush out of their house, head over to the car wash. Unfortunately, they're a little too late because they discover her small white convertible, which is still just like a movie dripping with soap. And there's nobody there attending to the vehicle. Oh, no. Multiple witnesses down the street mentioned that they saw a tan car speeding away from the car wash. And the fact that they so clearly remembered this moment was because it was speeding again the wrong way down a one-way street. So a missing persons report begins for Colleen Reed. And there really just are not a lot of leads and... This case is going to go unsolved for some time until later in our story. So we're actually going to jump to three months later. So three months after Colleen Reed's disappearance in the Austin car wash, Melissa Ann Northrup disappears from a familiar location that we have mentioned just this episode. She was a beautiful 22-year-old woman. She had previously had two children and she was pregnant with her third. She was working the night shift at the Waco Quick Pack. Oh, this is the place where McDuff used to work. In, yes. And in fact, she had worked on a paired shift with McDuff at one time. Oh, no. Yeah. She had mentioned to her boss several times that she did not feel safe working late hours by herself. And she even requested another employee to assist her for safety reasons. She had also mentioned to her mother that when she went back to stock beer boxes, which, you know, and here in the States, when you have a convenience store, you have to go back behind everything to go back in the fridge and stock the beer. Yeah. She told her mother that when she went back there to stock the beer boxes that she couldn't hear when people would enter the store. And a lot of times people coming in would catch her unawares. And she'd be like, oh, crap, there's people here. But also consider, I think we talked about this a little bit in your story with the Texas 7, even then in the early 2000s, there's not a lot of security cameras. Yeah. Well, in this particular convenience store, there weren't a lot of security cameras either. Yeah. And so not only were there not enough security cameras, there was no nighttime guard. And again, she had asked for someone to help her for safety reasons. Well, McDuff, since he had worked there before and with Melissa Northrup, He was very familiar with the store. Frighteningly so, you could even say. He had plenty of information about where the money was kept in the store. He knew that Melissa would be working all night alone. 
He knew the layout. Uh, he knew that there was an absence of security cameras. He even bragged to his friends that there was a good-looking girl who worked at a convenience store in town that he could rob without a problem. And he expected he would be able to get 200 to to $1,000 out of the safe. Well, McDuff was out in Waco the night of March 1st, 1992. He was reportedly trying to contact several friends and find someone to sell him some drugs. His car breaks down. Guess where, Aaron? Outside of the Quick Pack? About 200 yards from the Quick Pack convenience store. It's within eyeshot. Melissa Northrup was there working that evening. So this is just a complete coincidence? I mean, it's something that you can see from interviews with his friends and acquaintances and fellow like criminals that knew him, that he had been thinking about this for some time. His car breaks down. He's within 200 yards of it. He's thinking, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to yeah, go. So, like, yeah, it was a complete coincidence. He just yeah. happened to be there after he'd already been talking about robbing the place. Exactly. And is he by himself on this particular night? We believe so. Okay. So Melissa Northrup, who was working that evening, she often spoke to her husband, Aaron, on the phone throughout her shift. She had made several calls earlier in her shift with Aaron. They liked to check in on each other. Again, Melissa was uneasy about her safety. Aaron was too. They had this kind of like back and forth, like we'll call each other every couple of hours, you know, just to check up. Well, Aaron calls her back for another checkup call around 4 a.m., but he gets no answer. This is like his worst nightmare. He he calls back several times. He still doesn't get any answer. He begins getting super worried and he's fearing the worst. So he gets in his car. He hurries over to the store. Upon arrival, there's no sign of his wife, Melissa. Oh, no. His so wife. The store is just completely empty. The store is completely empty. Her car is also missing. Oh, no. And remember, Kenneth Allen McDuff's car broke down. Well, after talking to her mother and finding out she wasn't there either, and that her car also was not there. He he really gets worried. He calls the police. Another missing persons report is uh is put out. A few days into the investigation of Melissa's missing whereabouts, police discover McDuff's tan Thunderbird parked at the New Road Inn. And like I mentioned, it's within eyeshot of the convenience store. It's just across a field in a parking lot sitting there. It's also discovered that McDuff, too, is missing. No one has seen or heard from him since March 1st. This is where the whole case begins to change. You have a bunch of these cases all happening in Waco. You have two other cases in Temple, Texas and in Austin, Texas, that have happened around the state. Well, Texas marshals and federal prosecutors start kind of piecing these cases together. And how are they doing that by like vehicle descriptions and, and also, that kind of stuff? Yes, by the tan Thunderbird that was also seen in Austin by people looking into, well, who was released from prison that's headed through Temple, you know, from Huntsville. That's Kenneth Allen McDuff all over it. He's from the Waco area, so he's got to be like priority number one on some of these cold cases. That's exactly what authorities are are, are kind of thinking. They have a strong interest in these cases. They don't know anything for sure yet, but they have a lot to kind of point them in the right direction. And like you mentioned, they definitely want to use the fact that McDuff's vehicle was found near the scene of the crime for Melissa Northrup's case. The only problem was that Melissa Ann Northrup's disappearance was technically out of federal and U.S. martial jurisdiction. It was a missing persons case. It was not a murder or a homicide. They did not have a body. Uh, well, they didn't have a body of a lot of those women, right? Correct. The, the other, the, the only body that's been found so far was the very first. Right? Uh, yes, exactly from Temple. Yeah, they have Seraphia Parker's body, but 
she's the one with the least amount of evidence so far. Melissa Ann Northrup's disappearance is a missing persons case. It's technically under the control of Waco Police Department, city police. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What they needed now to gain access was some sort of kind of federal trump card, some federal charge that they could they could mark McDuff up with so that they could get access to the case files and move forward with this cross-state investigation. So what they do is, is pretty ingenious. And I'm going to bring up federal prosecutor Bill Johnson again. He is one of the big captains and champions of this case. I briefly mentioned him earlier. Well, he has a few tricks up his sleeve. He was able to find an informant who took down a statement that McDuff sold him a single tablet of LSD. This statement, along with the evidence that showed that Kenneth Allen McDuff was in possession of an illegal firearm, was both used to construct a federal affidavit and the resulting warrant for McDuff's arrest. So this is a huge moment in the case. So you got Bill Johnson, who has this like theory that Kenneth Allen McDuff is behind these crimes. He's able to go to a federal judge and present his case and get this sworn statement of a informant that has been sold a piece of LSD from McDuff to give them the ability to look into these cases. Like it's, it's a house of cards pretty much, but without this moment in the case, they wouldn't have been revealed the entirety of the rest of the iceberg of horrible things. Kenneth Allen McDuff did. That's basically how they use these two things with an illegal weapon and selling of a high-end narcotic to make a federal affidavit and a federal yeah. warrant so for his So now, arrest. because it's a federal case, now they're able to connect all of these pieces from these different jurisdictions. Exactly. Yeah. They get a U.S. Marshal manpower that's able to be brought awesome. into the case. Yeah. yeah, the Texas Rangers are able to be used now at this point. I think the FBI was used a little bit. But I don't I think it was just in like uh, minimal assistance in the case in profiling. But mostly it's U.S. Marshals and Texas Marshals and Texas Rangers that are involved. Wow. And, and really, at this point, they don't really have much to go on other than kind of a few. They don't have any hard evidence. They don't have any forensics or anything. They just have these descriptions. They have his past and et cetera, right? Yeah. And I think it's the fact that in Melissa Northrop's case, he goes missing and he is the premier suspect in her case. Mm-hmm. Especially that, his car being there. Yeah, his car being and there. And he worked there and, and kind of knew her. And also... Once they get this warrant, they're able to go investigate the car and get the evidence from city police, which includes five hair follicles in the car. The hair follicles match Colleen Reed's hair. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that even further emboldens Bill Johnson and the federal prosecutors and the U.S. Marshals that they're on the right track. The manhunt has to start. And this is the beginning 
of the biggest manhunt in Texas history and one of the largest in U.S. history that will go on for months. Yeah. Now, the question officially, because we know that he has later been connected to other women's disappearances. Officially at this point, how many women did they think he had? Was yeah. it just Colleen and Melissa at this point or had was he already officially kind of connected to other cases as well? For it's- your knowledge, they know of Colleen, Melissa, Regina and Brenda. Okay. Those four. The hairs. Was it DNA testing that confirmed it was Colleen's hairs or was it just phenotypic comparison? Originally, it was comparative analysis, but then eventually it is DNA connected once they find her body. It's a hard case to piece together. There's a lot of moving parts, man. Sure. So Melissa's case, as we're talking about, becomes the linchpin of the Kenneth Allen McDuff investigation. This was made clear primarily to U.S. Marshals in Texas, as well as federal prosecutors who had a strong interest in the case. They wanted to use the fact that McDuff's vehicle was found near the scene of the crime in combination with other facts regarding the deaths of three other missing women from around the state into a solid offensive against the one that they suspected. Again, going back to one of the biggest manhunts in Texas, U.S. history, they search all over the Waco area for these missing four women. They actually returned to his uh, parents' home in Belton, Texas, and they're questioning J.A., his father, and his mother, A.D., about McDuff's whereabouts. <laughs> Did A.D. pull the gun on him? No, she didn't pull out her gun. She's she's not doing well in health at this point. She's kind of on her way out of this world, and uh, she didn't want anything to do with the investigating of one of her boys. Of course not, yeah. But J.A. steps up to the plate. Uh, Bill Johnston remembers his father's comments regarding his son very poignantly because this is what he had to say. I don't know where he is. If you find him, you can kill him if you want to. Whoa. I I hate that boy. Wow. That's a strong damnation from your dad, right? Yeah. Do we know anything about that as to, was it a personal thing or was it because he knew that his his son was a serial killer. I'm pretty sure J.A. knew there was something going on. You know, Lonnie's been in and out of prison Mm. his whole life, too. He's been involved in several other murders and murder cover-ups, by the way. He knows his sons are no good. Yeah. And he's been a hardworking guy his entire life, by all accounts, a good dude. And he's just like, you know what? If you got to shoot him, you shoot him. Interesting. Definitely gives me uh, added respect for his dad, for sure. That's what I thought. That's why I included that little section there. Because he's not one of those guys who's like, oh, well, I'm going to aid and embed my serial killer son, because sometimes that happens. Yeah, definitely. So for the next six weeks, you have multiple agencies searching for McDuff, right? They question his friends, relatives, acquaintances, you know, people who've bought drugs from him, people who've sold him drugs, sex workers. And there's one common thread that seems to continue through all of this. And that's that McDuff always liked to get wasted and talk about murdering people and disposing their bodies in shallow graves. What a creepy thing for people to hang out with a guy who likes to talk about those things, right? I don't care how drunk I am. To me, you can make the argument, oh, this guy is just joking around. But even somebody who is making jokes like that is somebody who is seriously demented. And if even if you had a little inkling that this person was being serious. How could you ever hang out with this person, let alone be their friend? That is so amazing. And I'm sure we're going to get into it again, because we're going to be talking about this guy who was yet another accomplice of his. And Uh it's just um, how brazen he was is shocking. Yeah. 
and how it didn't seem like people were that bothered by the things that he had to say. It's a big red flag, and I don't see how it hasn't been brought up before this point. Around this time, authorities locate Alva Hank Worley. Originally, he was questioned as part of the large questionnaires that were sent out to Macduff's friends and accomplices. He lived just outside of Rosebud in a motel in Belton, Texas. Again, we're going to see Belton keep coming back. Mike McNamara, who uh, was a U.S. Marshal involved in this case, said that Worley's interview made them very suspicious. He was part of the team that was going out and investigating all these criminal accomplices of of Macduff. Well, about that interview and what made him so suspicious was when talking to Worley, he didn't have any strong feelings of emotion or he wouldn't give off any sense of remorse for any of the smaller crimes that him and Macduff had committed together. And he he clearly looked like he was holding something back, like there was something that he didn't want to talk about. So what investigators did was they kept sending other county investigators back to the area to keep hitting Worley and pressuring him. And it's a really smart move on investigators. You know, it's it's kind of another one of these wild uh, hairs up their butt that they're like, okay, of all these people, something doesn't seem right here. Let's keep hitting it because we got nothing else. Bell County investigator Bill Stieglich was one of the several to return for uh, ongoing interviews with Worley at his motel. Well, in April, he's talking to Worley and he's giving him like the the good cop treatment, the compassion, you know, like if you don't talk and if you don't say what's going on and what McDuff has done, these crimes are just going to happen again and again. And I know that like you don't like what happened. You and, you know, he keeps he keeps giving him the good cop treatment. Well, he finally breaks. And he agrees to let Bill take him in and to give a statement. And he says, quote, I think Mac may have hurt someone. And this was a nickname that he had for McDuff. He called him Mac. I was with Mac the night that he took the girl from the car wash, meaning Colleen Reed in Austin. So that's where our connection to Worley's involvement in Colleen Reed's car wash disappearance comes in. Worley's con- goes downtown. He writes a full confession and it's it's really rough to read. But, you know, in the details of his confession, along with what he told people on the stand during one of the trials later that we're going to talk about, is the details of the abduction of Colleen Reed. During which, after they snagged her from the car wash, they tied her up and they drove her back to an area south of Belton, Texas. They bound her hands behind her back and they repeatedly raped her. They burned her with cigarettes and they beat her severely much of which took place during the drive back to Belton with one of the other alternating into the back of the car. McDuff's parents owned a house, like we were talking about a little bit earlier, and some property there in Belton. It's about 40 minutes west of Rosebud. This is where Worley and McDuff took Colleen. They went down an old gravel road near the back of the family's property, and there they raped and tortured Colleen further. Colleen's last moments were horrifying. Reportedly, Worley watched as McDuff beat her to death on the gravel road. He went out there with investigators. Uh, he doesn't he didn't at this time know exactly what happened to Colleen's body after she died. But he took them to the area of the gravel road out on the family's property. And once they got to the spot where the beating happened, he covered his ears with his hands. And he said that he was feeling immense pain because he could still hear Colleen's screams. <sighs> All right. 
So we're going to go back a little bit in time. We're going to go a few days before Worley gives his now infamous statement to police. A body is discovered at the Texas State Technical College campus on March 25th of 1992. She would become known to the investigation as the fifth victim in the case. However, we now know that her murder most likely took place between the abduction of Colleen Reed and that of Melissa and Northrup on February 24th, 1992. So behind the campus in a marshy area, a young man stumbled upon a woman's body. Initially, it was suspected by investigators that they may have found Melissa Northrup's body because, you know, that's that's the main case that they're searching to find the body so that they can build their case against Kenneth Allen McDuff. And, you know, Melissa Northrup's a pregnant mother of two other children, and she's white. She's brunette. And uh, when they get to the scene of the crime, though, they're shocked when they find the body of a 20-year-old black woman in this marshy swamp area behind the college campus. And they're like, okay, who is this? This is the body of Valencia Joshua. She was also from Waco and was also a known sex worker who had connections to McDuff. She had bought drugs from him. She had last been seen at the college campus trying to locate McDuff for some reason. She was banging on his dorm room door, and that was the last time she was ever seen again. On April 16th, 1992, the U.S. Marshal's Office puts out a request. They hold a press conference, and they ask the public to be on the lookout for McDuff, hoping someone will be able to provide a lead on his whereabouts. They're starting to have all these developments in the case. They're finding more bodies, they're, they're finding more information, but they still don't know where Kenneth Allen McDuff is. They need to get him into custody, right? Just 10 days later, on April 26th, 1992... Melissa Ann Northrup's body is discovered in Dallas, Texas. A fisherman made the discovery when he noticed her body floating in about four feet of water in a gravel pit. Her hands were tied behind her, and she had been strangled with a rope. Her remains were badly decomposed, and the item used to tie her wrist together were her shoelaces. Keep that in mind. So by May in 1992... There's still very few leads in McDuff's whereabouts. U.S. Marshals get involved with the then popular TV show America's Most Wanted, Aaron. How, how much solving cases left and right? Dude, that show, <laughs> dude, the legacy that this show leaves behind, like it's still. Oh, it's incredible! How many cases you can say were absolutely solved because of that show? The Texas Seven were caught because of America's Most Wanted. Yeah, it's coincidence. That both of our cases that we just talked about involved America's Most Wanted, right? I know. I had no idea. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, they aired a program about McDuff and everything that had been going on and everything that they knew up until this point in early May, on May 1st. As soon as the program airs, they get a hot tip from some guy named Gary Smithy in Kansas City, Missouri. He said the man from the America's Most Wanted program looked an awful lot like one of his co-workers named Richard Fowler. They worked at a waste management company together. Well, of course, he's named himself Dick. Yeah. How appropriate. Yeah. Well, apparently he stole Richard Fowler's identity. This was another man that apparently when he was leaving the area, like he stole this dude's identity and he's just claiming to be Richard Fowler now. The Kansas City Police Department, which searched Richard Fowler's name and found that he had been arrested and fingerprinted for soliciting prostitutes and aggressive, violent behavior against sex workers had a matching fingerprint comparison to Kenneth Allen McDuff. And this was enough of a lead to send U.S. Marshals a-hunting for this guy in Kansas City, Missouri. 
So what happens is, on May 4th, 1992, a surveillance team of six officers arrest McDuff as he drives a waste management truck into a landfill in Kansas City, Missouri. He's immediately flown back to Waco, Texas. Upon arrival, he comes to his arraignment proceedings at the courthouse in Waco, and this massive crowd, which you can go and watch on that Robert Riggs footage that I was talking about, it's like all the families and relatives of all of his victims, including relatives from the original Everman killings, are there in Waco, Texas, and they are livid. They are going nuts. They're going crazy. They're like calling down scripture from the Bible and shaking the Bible at him. You know, they're they're calling him all of the warranted names that you would suspect as victims. Oh, yeah. You know, and he deserved every single one. Exactly. That's amazing. I would love to see that footage. Oh, dude. The the elation they must have felt that this guy was back in custody. Oh, must yeah. have been tremendous. Yeah. And actually, it was really weird because the U.S. Marshals then go from the manhunt scenario where they're hunting for this guy for six weeks until this point where they're now having to protect this guy. Now they're the protective detail because there's all these death threats coming in and people trying yeah, to murder him. Important. Yeah, but you he also up. sure. But it, I'm just it sucks, I, I understand. It, it sucks for the U.S. Marshals, you know, because they're having to gear up and like go into high protective mode. They don't know if somebody's going to pull a gun in a crowd sure, and like try and sure. shoot this and that, guy. In a way, uh, that must kind of be a like you know mental jump rope you know like trying to switch uh, this guy is a horrible piece of garbage who needs to die but i have to kind of you know lay my life down on the line to protect him from the people who want to hurt him yeah we uh, oftentimes we don't think about that part of your role in law enforcement it must be hard honestly well his first case actually begins in july of 1992 and that's the case of melissa northrup like we said prosecutors wanted to tackle this case first because they thought they had the best chance of a conviction and felt like a success here in Melissa's case would help with the more difficult cases down the road where they still didn't have bodies and they Mm -hmm. still didn't have a lot of other evidence. Well, in July of 1992, McDuff is arraigned. He pleads not guilty. His court-appointed attorney succeeded in moving the trial to a different community, but it didn't matter because on June 26, 1992, he's found quickly guilty of one count of capital murder and rape of Melissa Northrup. The second the world rejoiced. Yeah. Well, then we get to move on to the second case, which happens in Houston for Colleen Reed's murder. Mm-hmm. And in the case, McDuff, he he didn't fare any better. The case began in February of 1994. And one of the interesting things that the prosecution was able to show here and how they built their cascade of cases against McDuff was such that Colleen Reed and Melissa Northrup actually looked very similar as victims. Not only did Colleen Reed and Melissa Northrup look like each other, but they also looked like descriptions of Brenda Thompson and Regina Moore. So not only did they look similar in appearance, these his victims, but in Melissa Northrup's case, as well as some of the other bodies that we've been able to recover as Valencia Joshua and Serafia Parker, we've seen ligature marks and at least pantyhose or uh, shoelaces, something that was available on them during the event to tie their hands behind their back. So they actually prosecuted Colleen's case without her body? Yes. Okay. Hmm. Their deaths wouldn't come until after sexual torture, rape, severe beatings, and finally a strangulation of sorts. Some of the strangulations happen post-mortem. Some of them happen as the actual act of death, as we saw in the 1966 case with the broomstick. 
He was strangling some of the women after they had already died? Yes. So we're going to get into that with this next little bit of information. Okay. So the evidence against Macduff was, like we talked about before, the five hair follicles of Colleen's that had forensic comparative studies done on them with other hair follicles. But they also would be later DNA matched to Colleen's body that we're going to see down the road. But again, this is all circumstantial evidence that they're using to convict him in that cascade procedure that I was talking about earlier. So you get Melissa Northrup's case done and you're hoping that the jury is going to buy every one of the next convictions afterwards. I mean, yeah, as long as the judge was accepting, was allowing them to present his prior convictions on these rapes and murders. Yeah. Well, some of the comparative analysis was done with some of Colleen Reed's hair that was supplied by the family from like a hairbrush, I think. Is, is how they supplied the other comparative study follicles. But we've seen in other cases where judges have thrown that kind of evidence out, you know, because it's also circumstantial. There's not a ton of, of great matching that you can do just on visual hair follicles. No, for sure. But wh- you said that the, the family just supplied hair that they were then able to DNA test or they didn't no, actually DNA test. They did that. not actually DNA okay, test so it at is, the time. This was just purely just comparative analysis. Comparison. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not very strong. No, it's not a strong case to build, but that's again, why they went with this cascade effect mm-hmm. with why they started with Melissa Northrup first and move on, moved on to Colleen's case. Yeah. Very smart. The big wild card of this case though, is when the prosecution decides to pull Worley on the stand. Ugh. Yeah, well, Worley, he's being propped up by the defense attorneys as a liar and that he killed Colleen and that this was all his doing when he borrowed Macduff's car and went down to Austin for a fun night on the town. Wasn't this also his defense in the very first case where they were all trying to blame it all on Roy Del Green? Roy Del Green. Yes, exactly. So we're seeing him. I mean, he's evolved as a serial killer to change his M.O., but his defense isn't evolved at all. He's still picking these lackeys and trying to pin everything on the lackeys if he gets found out. Yeah. And luckily for us, the jury didn't buy it because Worley takes the stand Worley took everyone inside the courtroom through a terrible description of Colleen's final moments from when she was on that gravel road. Now, this is after she had been burned, raped and tortured several times on the way there. But he said, quote, Mac hit her the last time when he was beating her on the gravel road so hard with his fist that her body bounced off the gravel road. And I heard something in the woman break awful loud from about 15 feet away. She didn't move much after that. And I considered her dead from that point forward. Jesus. You know, this is something that we talked about kind of in the break. Men like Kenneth Allen McDuff are absolutely terrifying and they're horrible, evil people. Just lock them up forever, throw away the key. They don't need to be amongst the rest of us. But Men like that are very few and far in between. These kinds of serial killers, these deranged sexual psychopaths like him, like, you know, Golden State Killer, who we talked about, like Robert Ben Rhodes, who we had a series on. These kind of men are very, very unique. Yes. And it seems like they're everywhere, but they're not. Very small percentage of the population, yes. To me, what is more frightening are these men like Worley, like Roydale Green, who have acquiesced 
to these men's crazy plans on raping and murdering. Yes. And it's the whole thing of Roy Dale Green. Would he have ever done something like that on his own? Probably not. Probably not. There was no reason to suspect he would. But there was something about McDuff or something within Green himself that made him be complicit in an act like raping and murdering three different people. Yes. And and that is what's more terrifying. Worley the same way. Before so many he met McDuff, it yeah. seems like he was he was a criminal. Small, and he was, petty criminal. Exactly. So what was it? You know, how do you become just a kind of a regular guy, but you meet somebody and they're able to talk you into rape? torture and murder that to me is far more scary because how many people are like that are out there who could be talked into goaded into pressured into these horrible amazing crimes yeah it's that to me is is way more scary because i bet there are a lot more people like roydell green and alva warley in this world yeah the malleability of human nature to be sculpted into anything that a psychopath wants you to to do and to become is frightening. It's incredibly frightening. Yeah. Again, against pleas from McDuff's defense attorneys, McDuff took the stand in his own defense. Oh, God. I mean, this is all like a time travel, right? Exactly. Like it's, it it's sounds the same like thing the very that happened before. Yeah. yeah. He told a clearly fictitious account of what he had done the night while Worley had his car and alone killed Colleen. Uh, he rambled on and on for over an hour about where he went, who he talked to, what he did, and at one point even claimed that he jumped on a train car and skipped town. Oh, my God. Yeah. The jury didn't buy it. Just a few days later, they found him guilty yet again of capital murder and multiple counts of rape and torture. Good. He was sentenced to death by lethal injection. His response was when he was ushered out of the courtroom and was trying to start fights and was struggling against the sheriffs who were holding him and actually had to be restrained at one point in a stairwell. He almost, he almost attacked a reporter. There's footage of this. His response was, I'm sorry about what happened, but I wasn't the one who did it. And that would remain his story until the final weeks before he's actually put to death. So after being convicted and sentenced to death for the murders of Reed and Northrop, McDuff spent six years on death row. He would become the first and thankfully only man in U.S. and Texas history to be paroled from death row, convicted of capital murder, and returned to death row to be sentenced to death once more. How great. I still wrap your mind around that. Like you're set to go to the electric chair at a time when we're using the electric chair. You get paroled. You go and you start serial killing again. And then you come back to be lethal injected when we've reformed death penalty regulations and in the state of Texas, it's, it's it blows insanity. your mind, right? It's like a very, it's like a bad action movie. It's like yeah. Face Off. <laughs> we, you know, it's just like this ridiculous thing. It was like, oh, of course that didn't happen, except it fucking did happen. Mm-hmm. It's so upsetting. Yeah. Well, you know, over the next few years, McDuff keeps up his pleas of innocence and wrongful conviction. He hires a slew of different attorneys, and uh, he, of course, appeals several times. But it seemed this time Kenneth Allen McDuff had run out of luck and run out of cracks to slither through and that he was done for good. He did have several interviews. Some of them were with Gary Laverne, which you can read in The Bad Boy of Rosebud. And a couple of them were for Dateline and a couple of other different media outlets. If you want to go and look at those and analyze him 
lying and saying he's innocent and look at his mannerisms and him joking go for it i, I we weren't we're not going to play that audio but you can you can find it pretty easily by searching his name on youtube and in google have you watched any of it i have and i hate it i hate him so much when he when I he laughs and cracks I wanna, jokes i want to compare it with other you know f- famous serial killers in the same sort of situation yeah at one point uh there's a, a female uh journalist interviewing him and she's like you know, hitting him with hard question after hard question about what he did and what people in the public say about him. And he just chuckles to himself and smiles this cold, dead smile. And is just like, you're coming at me awful hard with these questions and just laughs to himself. Can you imagine being a female reporter trying to talk to this guy? That makes me, that makes my stomach churn just thinking about it. Ugh. Yeah. Speaking of which, I'm trying to contact somebody who used to be on Texas Death Row. Oh, yes. Yeah. So that's something that we're working on for. No, we're, we're going to cut this. That's sure. going to be a big surprise. Sure. That's... Big surprise. Fuck yeah. I'm very excited about yeah. that. So, yeah, during these interviews where he's cracking jokes and making these stupid smirks, he always attests that he has no idea where Colleen Reed, Brenda Thompson or Regina Deanne Moore's bodies are. These are the the three missing bodies that we're still searching for. As McDuff's final days are numbered, and it became very important to federal prosecutor Bill Johnston to somehow get McDuff to tell them where the other bodies were, they start coming up with some ingenious ideas. So one of Bill Johnston's ideas is to get a prison informant to ask McDuff some questions about the whereabouts and to kind of prompt him about his crimes in prison, right? Authorities never did say who the informant was. I do have a clue about who it actually was. Do you want to know? Uh, Absolutely. So shortly after this informant was able to get information out of McDuff, a judge reduced the sentence of McDuff's nephew, Michael Wayne Royals, who was 42 at the time, from 15 years to 10 years for delivering amphetamines and uh, methamphetamines. Oh, so it's snap. his nephew. It was his own nephew. Yeah, his nephew turned Good on him. Good job, buddy. Yeah. That's awesome. His details of the location uh, after talking to McDuff was that he knew that one of the bodies was near a bridge, near a creek, that he could specifically tell Bill Johnston where that was. Well, in late spring of 1998, Regina Deanne Moore's body is discovered in a shallow grave near a bridge and a small creek near Waco, Texas. Her hands had been tied behind her back with her own shoelaces. Her ankles were bound with her own stockings. Mm. Under pressure from Bill Johnston, who comes back at McDuff in his final moments in prison, McDuff gives the authorities a description of a wooded area near Waco where they can find the body of Brenda Thompson. Remember, this is the older sex worker from the Waco cut. She was buried in a foot-deep grave, face down, with her hands bound behind her back with her shoelaces, her ankles bound with her hose and stockings. Two weeks before McDuff was scheduled to be executed, he still did not want to give the location of Colleen Reed's body. He told one inmate, she's my final prize. I can't give her away. Ugh. Yeah, I know, right? Authorities were had interviewed McDuff several times about the location of Colleen Reed's body, And he had told them several times that he feared losing his privileges that he had grown accustomed to if he told them where she was buried. He was talking about things like his commissary, his yard time, his access to the library. Again, this is two weeks before he's set to be killed. The fact that he gave a crap about those things for the next two weeks 
nonsensical. It, it describes psychopath, right? And like power and like, I've got two weeks left. I can't give up my library time. Yeah. yeah and it's also like the power of the situation, right? You know, that he's holding it over them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Investigators go and they meet with him. And they promise in writing that he won't lose any of his privileges. And Macduff finally gave a very detailed account to where they could find Colleen Reed's body. On October 6, 1998, there on a bank of the Brazos River, close to Macduff's childhood home of Rosebud, authorities began digging with excavators. They didn't find anything initially. So as they grow desperate, they make a secret arrangement and they actually get Macduff out of prison, off of death row, to come and visit the site. And as soon as he gets there, he steps out of the transport vehicle from Huntsville and he looked at the site for a few minutes and said, tell them to move the excavator over one blade length to the right. They complied, and almost immediately they found the remains of Colleen Reed. Even after the whole environment had changed, and they said that it had been seven years since her abduction from the Austin car wash, and there had been several floods, and like the whole area looked different, he still somehow knew exactly where her body was. Wow. Yeah. Well, at least we have some kind of closure for their family, and her body was found. The DNA was matched to her hair follicles that were found in his car. But all that is a moot point because it's just further clarification that this monster is the monster that we thought he was. He is the monster from under the bed, the nightmare fuel of Texas. His execution finally took place on November 17th, 1998. He was 52 years old. Although reports said he did show emotion... It was one of fear, and he never did show any sign of remorse of his crimes. Oh, of course not. But they said when I hope he was scared witless. That's what they said. They said when they strapped him down to the gurney. You've seen the gurney that they use. Yeah. They strapped him down. They said his veins started throbbing. Good. His final words at his execution said, I'm ready to be released. Release me. And they hit the plunger. You can find his grave at Huntsville's uh, cemetery at Peckerwood Hill, and... I think it's poignant. How fitting. Yeah, it's poignant that it's Peckerwood Hill. Uh, his, Which we did have a listener, sorry, um, I, I don't remember her name offhand, but she did say, she confirmed with us that she actually lives kind of near this area, and it's open to the public. You'll have to look for his white cross tombstone that they have sitting on his grave, and it's marked with X999055, which is actually his death row number. When you, this is an interesting fact, when your family doesn't want to come pick up your body from Texas death row, when you're finally put to death, you just get put on Peckerwood Hill and your name is left off the cross yeah, and they just put your death row grave. number. Yeah, yeah. basically. There you go. And say it again for the people who want to go take a shit on it. X nine 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 zero five five. There you go. At the very least, you got to go spit on it. Yeah. Students. I'm so I'm sorry. I'm so mad. (laughs) Contain your rage because we have more things to get angry about until the end. And then you can explode. Authorities believe that he murdered 16 victims over his lifetime. In his last 48 hours of death row, he admitted to the 1966 killings in Everman, Texas, finally, which he had always said he was innocent of, as well as six women that were mentioned in this episode. I'll say their names again. Brenda Thompson, Regina Deanne Moore, Colleen Reed, Valencia Joshua, Melissa Ann Northrup, and Serafia Parker. Now, did he do this because he was trying to get off of death, death row? 
Well, he was just, you know. Or what, was he just finally like, I'm going to tell my tale because I know I'm about to die. This was the last yeah, 48 he accepted hours. It? Yeah, this is okay. the last 48 hours. He was. I was just wondering if he had, he was pulling a Ted Bundy where he was trying to kind of bargain no. that information he, for more time. He always said that he had other dolls that would stay in his dollhouse. Oh, God. Yeah. And so that's why there's these other, you know, victims involved in the story. And you, wherever you stand on the death penalty in Texas, it's kind of a double-edged sword because it's because of the death penalty that we found out and he finally admitted to the six other women and the original three murders in 1966. But if he had had life in prison, would we have been able to whittle him down and get more information out of him because he loved to talk? He loved to brag. Could we get more informants and finally get these, uh, the rest of the 16 total victims that he had, you know, to get closure for those families? And also because there might have even been more. Yeah, there could have. But so, authorities definitely think it's 16 plus. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's a really interesting point. And again, to bring up Ted Bundy, sorry, I don't mean to do it again, but there's kind of a similar thing that happened towards the end of right before he was executed. Like I was saying, he was trying to bargain the information that he had on all of his victims in order to get more and more stays of his execution date. And eventually all of the victims' families came together. These are the victims that he was prosecuted for and the victims who they still had not been prosecuted. The cases were still open and they could not find their bodies. All of the victims' families came together and said, no, no more of this. We want our justice. We know he did these things. We don't need to play his game. We want him to die. We want our justice. And they all stood together. He was executed without giving out that information of where those women's bodies were that had not been yet been found. And I think that's a really interesting bit of information. It is. But the thing is, all those those families were questioned about it and they were able to explain what their wants and 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 desires desires, were about this case. Um, uh, You know, obviously in this case that wasn't, that wasn't done, but I think it is interesting that some, some families say, well, I'd rather have the justice rather than have the body. Yeah. Well, it's kind of the polar opposite in some of the Robert Ben Rhodes situation where he has life in prison. He's in a state that doesn't have the death penalty. And there's a lot of families that are holding out for closure that uh, federal investigators will be be linking him and he maybe will talk and they can finally get closure to their daughters and children. It's just interesting because we can always make parallels between these cases of these sexually sadistic serial killers. But... They're also very unique in of themselves, yeah. each and every one. And so I would, I would at least hope, I mean, I think that's a really interesting point that you're making, uh, maybe even against the death penalty on these cases, because what more could we learn from them yeah. if they were still alive? But, you know, he's gone. Hallelujah. Hopefully the families are okay with that. And maybe we can solve these cases in other ways. We don't know. I mean, DNA is a potential here. We don't know how technology is going to get better and better in isolating DNA and and other ways of forensics to connect, you know, a perpetrator and a crime. So, you know, hopefully we can still get answers to these kinds of cases where we know he has more bodies out there. Definitely. Well, let's get into some of the aftermath topics. Because there, there is a big giant tsunami wave that is caused by the earthquake of Kenneth Allen McDuff. And that starts with Governor Ann Richards. This is the last Democratic governor of the state of Texas. It's been a very red state since Ann Richards. And this is one of the biggest things Ann Richards did during her tenure as governor of Texas. 
she inherited this broken Texas justice system from Bill Clement. If you remember, Bill Clement was the one who struck the behind the scenes backdoor deal with the Texas parole board. Yeah. And for she, the 150 a day. Yeah. Uh, prison, prisoner release. Yeah. Exactly. And she stands up and she just, she gets information and starts figuring out like what's going on. She's involved in the manhunt and giving all the, the resources available of the Texas U.S. Marshals to the manhunt. And she stands up and after he's put to death, she says enough is enough. She begins running a full investigations and even a few prosecutions on the Texas parole board for embezzlement, bribery, and collusion. Hmm. She ends up remaking the entire Texas parole board. She also finally convinces voters and legislators to reform the Texas justice system, which led to the passing of several laws that would become known as the McDuff Laws. And in closing, about the McDuff laws and about the end of McDuff's case and the Texas justice system, I'd like to end with a quote from Ken Anderson. It's it's kind of a long quote, but I think it's a really good one. The McDuff debacle galvanized public opinion like no other case. The Texas legislature passed sweeping reforms. The citizens overwhelmingly voted for Governor Ann Richards' billion-dollar bond to finance more prison beds. The result was dramatic. The prison system expanded from 38,000 beds to 140,000 beds. Good time merits were significantly reformed, if not struck out completely. Minimum parole eligibility doubled for violent offenders. The pace of executions picked up, and Texas executed far more killers than any other state, any other country, in the next 22 years. The code in Texas was if you're a violent offender, your penalty is death. Had all these reforms been in effect in 1966, Kenneth Allen McDuff's case would have turned out differently. He probably would have been executed. If he had somehow been able to avoid execution, his life sentence for uh, capital murder would have required him to serve 40 calendar years rather than 10 before the parole board would have even considered him. When his time came, he would not have been considered by a three-member panel of the board, as in the typical case, the full 18-member parole board would have reviewed his case. He would have needed 12 votes of the 18-member parole board. Before they could have voted, the board would have had to have listened to many presentations by victims, loved ones, law enforcement, and other lower-level judges and prosecutors. The bottom line? Under the laws enacted in the wake of McDuff's case, those passed by Ann Richards, quote-unquote the McDuff laws, he would now be either dead or wouldn't have received initial parole review until 2006 in the 1966 Tarrant County murder cases. He would have found his initial review heavily stacked against him. Far more importantly, Brenda Thompson, Regina Deanne Moore, Colleen Reed, Valencia Joshua, Melissa Ann Northrup, and Seraphia Parker, and perhaps several other women would still be alive today. That's the way I'd like to finish out this episode. Again, I think if you're interested in true crime, you should go out and pick up Ken Anderson's Crime in Texas, and everybody should have a copy of The Bad Boy of Rosebud by Gary M. Laverne. There's so much I cut out of this episode that Gary M. Laverne talks about in his book. It's amazing if you really want to get into the nuts and bolts of Kenneth Allen McDuff and, you know, the families, the victims law enforcement, detectives, U.S. Marshals, everything. It's awesome. 
it's a page turner he's a really good writer and that's all i got that's the broomstick killer part two. Oh man what a disaster that was amazing that was incredibly well done i loved it personally i hope you guys enjoyed it as well i have to say you know this wasn't intentional this kind of connection that we had between the the texas 7 case that i just finished and then the kenneth allen mcduff cases it just kind of as we were talking, we realized the connection, especially with the Texas prison system, that these two cases had. Um, and I think it's really, really interesting that we yeah. basically just broke down about 60 years of Texas prison laws and, and Texas prison regulations in about four episodes of our show. And I think it was really, really interesting. I hope you guys liked it as well. What is amazing about this case is not only is Kenneth Allen McDuff such an incredible monster, and he's not really a well-known monster, which yeah. is very incredible. You know, he's not a BTK or a, a Ted Bundy or any of these kinds of people, but he had such an incredible impact on the Texas prison system and the Texas justice system. And in a lot of ways, the Texas political system as well, because we yeah. can see all of the politics that really evolved from this case. And I think that not only is this case interesting just for people who are interested in true crime and getting justice for victims, but also people who study the law for law enforcement, for people who are interested in, you know, victims' rights or anything like yeah. that, because we see all of the mistakes that were made in this case, and we can hopefully move forward and make sure that a person like this, who has demonstrated that they are a violent offender, who cannot be rehabilitated, who will continue to kill a person like that should never be let out of prison, yeah. period. Is it the system that caused Kenneth Allen McDuff to become who he would be? Because we had him. We had him, you know? And like I said, would would these women still be alive? Yeah, and him um, spending all those years in prison. Exactly. And, and getting, you know, learning how to be a good criminal by being in prison and then being released. Or was it... Yeah, I don't know which one is the chicken or which one is the egg, but it's fascinating. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we uh, really tried to do a good job of putting it out. I'm not going to say I enjoyed it because I didn't. No, I know and you it was, didn't. It was rough. And I, I think it I, added to my illness, honestly. Oh, I'm sure it did. And I know it's it was a little harder, too, because obviously we, we do try to go into into hard details of the victims. We always want to talk about the victims and their, you know, at least give a little bit of details of their lives and everything. I know for, that for some of his victims, unfortunately, you couldn't find that information. Yeah. And just the sheer number of victims he had, we can't, you know, it's it's just really hard to pack all that information it in. Is. But we will, of course, as we always do, we will be sharing their information and their pictures online. So you can, you know, get a feel for who these women were. And, you know, in that way, I think pay them a little bit of honor and respect that they deserved. Sure. Yeah. And I'm not going to post any pictures of Kenneth Allen McDuff. No, you can, you can do a Google search and look for him. You know, it's pretty much a uh, standard practice for us to not post uh, yeah. offenders pictures. But you know, if you are interested in checking out any of those links, I will be tweeting out some links to like the Robert Riggs Pulitzer winning prize footage on YouTube of everything that he was doing on his investigative reports. I think that's fascinating. So go check that out. We might be tweeting out some other stuff about it. You know, as always, we got your resources. Come check us out. You know, we got your back. So one of the last things I wanted to talk about, and maybe this is something for a bonus episode or something. Uh, we, we have a Patreon coming. Maybe we can put some extended material out about this at a later time. But Aaron, 
this case of Kenneth Allen McDuff and Alva Hank Worley has ties to a very famous cold case in Texas that we've thought about covering called the Yogurt Shop Murders. Oh, yes. And if you don't know anything about the yogurt shop murders, this was the murder of four teenage girls who three of them were workers at a yogurt shop. The fourth was a little sister of one of the girls. They were all murdered in a yogurt shop in Austin, Texas, and the shop was then burned down. And first responders were called due to the fire that enveloped um, kind of the shopping center and the yogurt store. And that's when they found the bodies of these four girls. Yeah, two men were initially arrested and convicted who had confessed to the murders. But it was later overturned due to lack of evidence and their confessions were um, coerced. And so actually, this case took place back in December 6, 1991. If you know anything about our timeline, this is right in the wheelhouse of Kenneth Allen McDuff and Alva Hank Worley. And there is some interesting conspiracy theories around this case because at one point, Kenneth Allen McDuff says that he thinks that, that Alva Hank Worley gave information over to authorities about the yogurt shop murders. And that's why he was lying and uh, pinning everything on him during his trial. And that's from Kenneth Allen McDuff. That that's where the yogurt shop idea just springs forth into this case is from the mouth of McDuff. Hmm. What's interesting is that Texas Rangers who are maintaining this case as a cold case and along with Austin Police Department's cold case unit, they have never either agreed or, you know, pushed away these allegations that Alva Hank Worley and Kenneth Allen McDuff may or may not have been involved. In fact, both of them were people of interest during the time. And those details of the case have never been open to the public. So we still don't know. And that's why when I go back and I talk about like his execution, whether he should have spent life in prison and we could have found out more information about him. These are the kind of things I'm I'm referencing, and these are the the kind of things I could do a whole bonus episode about. Yeah, you know, because we just don't know. I mean, it's interesting because um, they were in the area around the same time, and the four girls, of course, their their bodies were pretty badly damaged because of the fire that was set. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that there were signs of sexual assault on at least one of them. Yes. Per, per, maybe multiple. It's, it's, I don't remember the, all of the details. That's just, correct. Just going over it right now. But so I have a question though, because obviously that this fire was set, this arson was set in order to cover up the murder of the four girls. Was arson ever a part of McDuff's? sort of a legacy so if you go through crime yeah so if you go through his criminal background and some of the other murders of the 16 plus women that are attributed to his career as well as do you remember his brother big rough lonnie mcduff burning the evidence out in his driveway yeah both of them have been suspected and also tried in arson cases before Mm-hmm. And if you talk to some of the informants of his his prison cell on death row, they talk about him discussing arson as a way to cover up evidence. And it's interesting because he's the one who brings up Alva Hank Worley uh, thinking that he's given up information about the yogurt shop murders. 
Yeah. It comes from no one else. It comes from him. We know he does arson to cover up things in the past. There's no real evidence that we know of because, it, again, it's a cold case. But I'd I'd love to do more research on it and go further into it. Yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, those that case is such a well-known case in Texas true crime. Uh, for example, if you, if you don't know much about this case, there's there's a few good books about it. I believe True Crime Garage did a really good series on it as well. I think My Favorite Murder has covered it. Yeah. Um, so it's been covered in lots of different areas. But I don't know if I've ever heard of the connection between McDuff yeah. and this case. It so makes sense. really fascinating to me. I actually want to go in and, and actually do more research to see what, you know, these parallels could be because it's yeah. different than what you've described so far. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to definitely do some more research about that. And by we, I mean you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, maybe I thought it was worth mentioning. Information. No, it's, I think it's, I definitely want to know more about that. It fits right with Melissa Northstrup's robbery at the Quick Pack, stealing money, getting mm-hmm. her in her car and taking her away. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. True. Yeah. Anyways, I think it's time for some good news. And we need it. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, this week we have a very cute little um, happy good news story. This is coming from something that is a Texas treasure. This is from a Whataburger in Dallas. Oh, (laughs) man. Everybody Um, loves Whataburger in the Lone Star State. You know, I have to say, I'm not a huge fan of Whataburger. Yeah, we're going to get crucified for that. Oh, we are. But I'm I'm much bigger. They're going to tear us down. I'm a bigger Brahms fan. I like Brahms a lot. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, Whataburger. Their uh, vegetables are so, like, gross and not fresh. Maybe we don't have good Whataburgers here where we're at. But or maybe we're not ordering the right things. Yeah. I don't know. But, you know, if you're a Texan, you know Whataburger, and you know it's, like, the biggest thing, and everybody's very proud of Whataburger. Well, this happens at a Whataburger in Dallas. This is the Whataburger that's located on Lemon near Love Field Airport. Oh. So it's right there. And what happened is a duck waddled up (laughs) right in front of the Whataburger in the parking lot. She made a little nest of all the little mulch that I guess they had in their kind of garden area or something. And she laid her eggs. Oh, okay. Did some ducklings. Yeah, and she ended up having ducklings. And so she had obviously a couple weeks or whatever where she was sitting on the eggs and protect them from... Incubate them. Yeah, incubate them and protect them from the weather and all of that stuff. And basically what happened was the employees at the Whataburger saw this and instead of scooting her along and any of the things that they could have done, what they did is they actually, they pulled out their orange traffic cones and they wrapped caution tape all around those parking cones. That way anybody going into the the parking lot of the Whataburger would actually be able to miss her so they wouldn't accidentally run over her and her eggs. So this wasn't like in the the drive-thru. This was like in the entryway to the parking lot. I'm not sure. It, It just says that she was 
was in her the parking lot in the front of the restaurant, so I'm oh, not sure okay. if that was directly in the area that you would drive or if it was maybe like a little garden area or, you know, a yeah. place where like a median area. I'm not exactly sure where she was, but apparently it was in a place where she could accidentally have been hit. Um, So they want to ensure that she would be okay. So they kind of made a little corral for her to make sure that nobody would hit her. And so she sat on these eggs and she ended up laying eight eggs in her little nest. And she became kind of like a mascot for the store. They ended up naming her Lily and they would come out and they would bring her food and water and just kind of take care of her. You know, she's a mama taking care of her eggs. It's got to be hard to incubate a bunch of eggs. What, were they giving her chicken tenders and gravy? I'm like, not sure. I hope okay. they weren't giving her chicken. That's a little, uh, <laughs> a little too close. Yeah, a little too close to uh, cannibalism. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, this kind of was a little bit of a show. And so customers all kind of flooded in and would take pictures of Lily and her little egg nest it became kind of a thing, you know, people coming in and taking pictures of Lily and the little ducks and their little safe space that she had and her little water bowl and her thing of food. Yeah. At first, when you were describing this, I thought you were going to say instead of orange cones, they were going to put those little number uh, things that Waterburger has, <laughs> those little triangles. Yeah. Yeah. With the numbers on it. I thought that's what you were going to say, but I thought you were going to build a home out of those. I mean, that's a better story. We could go with that if yeah, you want. Yeah, sure. And so some people are asking, why would a duck choose to lay its eggs at a water burger in the parking lot? And somebody provided a theory. This is Lucille Couch, who was one of the customers at the water burger. And she said, quote, she must be a Texas duck through and through. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she knows. And this story just came out. This is um, a story from WFAA News 8 ABC. And yeah, this same came place out- Robert Riggs is, Riggs is from. Oh, yeah. nice. Weird parallel there. Ooh. This story came out on um, May 8th, so it's now been a while. As of now, the the, uh, ducklings have not hatched, but um, they're still being protected in their little corral with their mama duck. And they're assuming that once the eggs hatch, which should be in a few more weeks, I guess, the mama duck Lily and all of her little new babies will actually probably move on, on over to Bachman Lake, which is a lake that is nearby that has a lot of uh, ducks and mm. wildlife and everything. So they'll have a nice little happy home over there, hopefully, away from the Whataburger and all of the cars that yeah. will potentially run them over. <laughs> yeah, immediately when you told me about this story, I was hoping that the, the article title was, What a Duck? Because we know that's the commercial for oh, Whataburger. Oh, lordy. What a burger. Because a lot of people say Whataburger, and that's not correct. No, it's what. What a burger. What a burger. Yeah. What, no, it's Whataburger. Well, I mean, it's up for debate amongst Texans. No, it's Whataburger. Is it Waterburger? Like w- it's Whataburger. Yeah. That's how a lot of people say it. But on the commercial, it's what a burger. But nobody says what a burger. I know. It's That's my point. It's it's a duck before the egg situation. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> but anyways, it's a really cute story of a little duck. And, you know, the, the ways that people go out of their way to make sure that this duck and her family are safe. And I thought it was a very cute story. Uh, that That's a great story. And I'm glad you brought that up. And everybody loves Whataburger in Texas. That's awesome. Everybody loves ducks.
Now it is time for five-star reviews. Yeah. And remember, guys, if you leave us a five-star review, either on iTunes or on Facebook by searching Facebook for All Crime No Cattle, we will read your reviews on the show. It is excellent. It is our favorite part of the show. Yeah. Because we get to let our hair down. Yeah, it's Read fun. Your, your thoughts. I love it. Remember, you can also follow us on social media. We're at ACNC Podcast on Twitter. We are at All Crime No Cattle on Instagram. You can also shoot us an email at allcrimenocattle at gmail.com. And you can also visit our merch shop at allcrimenocattle.threadless.com. It is amazing. We got our gear in. It is cool. That mug is sweet. People are buying things left and right, and it's awesome. I like my shirt, and I, I like our mug. It's really cool. I want to buy some more stuff. Show us your rose and bones. That's what I want to see. I want to see our fans wearing rose and bones merchandise. Yeah, please, if you buy- From all you, over the world. If you buy any of our merch, please tag us on uh, social media. Yeah. I would love to see it. All right, we'll start with Facebook reviews first this week. Our first five-star review comes from Marsha Deanne. She was like, you know what? I'm not going to bother you with words or wisdom. I'm just going to give you five stars. And I'm going to get out of here. Yeah. Thank you, Marcia. Thank you, Marcia. The next one comes from Caleb Hall. They say, I'm a pool boy, so I'm by myself all day driving from house to house and listening to y'all's podcast makes my day go by a lot faster and keeps me interested throughout the day. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Caleb. If you want to install a pool in our yard. Oh, heck yeah. I'd be okay with it. Let's do that. Also, that sounds like kind of a serial killer's job, being a pool boy, because <laughs> you get to lurk around in people's backyard and kind of look sure, through windows sure. and such. But, you know, I bet your day is tedious and you're picking up leaves out of filters and such. So I'm glad we're able to keep you company. Harley Solace is next up. And they said, Harley here. I love the podcast. I'm hooked. Keep it up. And we will, Harley. Yeah. We will indeed. You're on the hook. I'm a fisherman. We hooked you good. Pulled that rod up river. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> a little fisherman knowledge on you. Maybe, maybe somebody out there does. Yep. Jessica Birch is next, and she says, I love this podcast. The hosts bring the right amount of levity and gravity to the horrible cases they cover. I heard about them from another favorite of mine, the true crime enthusiast, and I'm so glad for that recommendation. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much, hmm. Jessica. And thank you, Drew Graham Enthusiast. Hello. Yeah, wow. Big to be up there with those names. The names of True Crime Enthusiast and Jessica Birch? Yeah, Jessica Birch. <laughs> she's she's very well she's known. She's well respected she's in the a, genre. Well, she's a big deputy of the True Crime Posse. I think I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Taylor Ferguson says, I love y'all's podcast. Great conversational format that makes for an easy listen. Would love to see you guys do something over Janine Jones, the killer nurse from the Houston area in the 80s. It would be interesting since she's currently facing new charges to prevent her release. And yes, I agree. That would be interesting. Mm. We've actually discussed multiple times covering Janine Jones. You guys aren't wrong. probably will. Yeah. I don't know. It's one of those cases that has been covered many times over. I'll do it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'll find. I'll dig up something new, something fresh, something okay. rotten Sounds that good. you guys will enjoy. Yeah, if, if you're not familiar, um, she was an angel of death, so she was a nurse who killed many, many, many a child. Unfortunately, yeah, that definitely goes into our Lone Star Lunatic series. But hey, I'm willing. Yeah, for sure. And she was a very horrible, insane person. Yep. So thanks for the wreck. Yes. Appreciate it, Taylor. Thank you, Taylor. Hey, keep doing what you're doing, Playboy. Chase that money. 
Our last Facebook review comes from Irene Castillo, and they said, Started listening this week, and I love it. I'm a fan of true crime and listen to all the crime shows. Yours is one of my favorites. Irene, thank you. Badass. What a glorious human being you must be. I used to know a Castillo. Yeah? They were a trumpet player in my marching band. And they were really good. Oh my god, literally nobody cares about your marching band in high school. Hey, maybe Irene Castillo knows them. Maybe... She does. Maybe she you know also, what? Maybe I she bet, just doesn't care like me, though. I bet Irene Castillo is still a badass regardless. Granted, that is the truth. And so is everyone yeah. who gave us a five-star review. Thank you. Let's get on to some five-star iTunes reviews. We've had a rough patch on iTunes recently, Aaron. How about we start with TTH515. They say, God bless Texas. Five stars, which, hey, what a way to start out a review. I used to say the only good things to come out of Texas were Molly Ivins, I know, Transplant, and Ann Richards, which we just discussed in this Ah. episode. Uh, 2013 made me add Wendy Davis to this list, and 2018 is making me think I should add this podcast. Definitely better than the two boyfriends from Texas that I've endured. Keep up the great work, y'all. Five stars. (laughs) I love it. I love that we're somewhere in that pantheon of somewhere things. in between your crappy Texas boyfriends and Ann Richards. Ann Richards. <laughs> <laughs> it was poignant. I'll take it. it was poignant, right? I'll take it for sure. Yeah. Thank you. Nikki Crow twenty one says, What a hidden gem of a podcast. Five stars. I stumbled across this looking for some new true crime podcasts, and I'm loving it. I'm a huge true crime fan, and I listen to quite a few great podcasts. I now count this one as one of my favorites. And I'm a stickler for voices. And I hate feeling like I'm just being read to from a sheet of facts as I read you your own review. (laughs) Shay and Aaron have great chemistry, which is a good thing, being that they're married and all. Everyone always brings that up. It's a good thing that we have good chemistry. Do a lot of marriages not have good chemistry? I don't know. Well, maybe not. (laughs) Man, I feel bad for you guys. I know. Find someone you call your best friend. That's what I did. Eh. Oh, love you, Aaron. You're all right. You want to redo that? (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Oh, boy. You can tell that they extensively research each episode and are able to balance humor with respect for the victims perfectly. Thank you. We try really hard about that. I've enjoyed every episode so far, and I'm not even from Texas. Sending you guys greetings from the Buckeye State, Ohio, by the way. Keep up the great work. Yeah, we know the Buckeye State. Ohio is a great place. Oh, uh, Great place for murders as well. I think a Buckeye is a bean from ohio and i think it's poisonous unless you you treat Is that it that true that's my guess i feel like that's not true i feel like we're now we're gonna get a one-star review because we <laughs> misnamed ohio beans i know the ohio state buckeye <laughs> the buckeye is their mascot and it's this weird like guy who's like have a bean for a head what are yeah. you talking about? no it's a thing like look it up He's all right guys while it. you look that up i'm gonna say thank you for that very kind review that's exactly what we can you know kind of hope for the show is that you enjoy the banter and the fact that we're not putting on airs or pretending like we're authorities on these subjects yeah <clears throat> and that we try at least to be as well researched as possible and we also try to pay respect for the victims that's our show in a nutshell and, yep. and, and i appreciate that in a you- buckeye if you will <laughs> My God. And I appreciate that, you know, those of you who, who, you know, feel like you were really, um, like that as well. So thank you very much. That's a very kind review. It was. 
The next one comes from Shah Dynasty. No, no, no. That's Shah Dynasty. Oh. Shah Dynasty from uh, It's Always Sunny. Oh, Do you remember yeah, Frank's girlfriend? Mm-hmm. And they How named they named the bar Shah Dynasty, but the way her name was spelled, it looked like Shady Nasty. It does look like Shady Nasty. I love it. We love Always Sunny. I appreciate your your. I, I'm already. I already love you just because of yeah. your username. Shah Dynasty says hooked five stars. Just finished the la- latest episode and I'm totally hooked. Great show and sound quality. Keep up the good work. And that's where they decided to end it. Which hey. Thank you, Shadow Dynasty. Stay away from Frank and don't go with him to Columbia. Whatever yeah. you do. Monkey Jones 1980 says, five stars, great show. This show is well-researched. The audio quality is great. Thank you so much. And the hosts narrate well together. Definitely recommended for all true crime enthusiasts in Texas and beyond. That was... Erica, the host of Martinis and Macabre. Oh, exciting. Yeah. I didn't know that they reviewed us. Excellent. Thank you, Erica. Yes, and go check out their podcast, Martinis and the Macabre. Very cool. We love it as well. And I think that's a good point to end. We have, uh, as always, a promo to play for you guys <gasps> from one of our favorite we shows. So ex- We've been excited to promote this podcast. This podcast this week is Gone Cold. And this is a podcast. Gone Cold. Anybody needs to listen to Gone Cold, but especially if you are in Texas, this is almost mandatory that you listen to it. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Uh, they cover several cold cases in Fort Worth that are really important. Carla Walker is a huge part of the podcast. That's where the, the podcast really starts out. The, the narrator, Vincent, does an amazing job of talking to family victims, uh, cold case investigators, doing interviews, really getting to the bottom of what's still going on with Carla Walker's case. Um, there's a ton of community involvement. It's, it's an awesome, uh, podcast. They're, they're moving forward with new cold cases that they're, they're currently investigating that are very interesting and it's very victim oriented, victim centric. And, uh, yeah, Vincent does a really good job. He's a really cool guy. I've gotten to meet Vincent. We have, I know I'm um, so jealous. I still have yet to meet Vincent, but I've talked to him online a couple of times, yeah. well, but I haven't met him in person yet, but that's going to change. We're going to meet Vincent very soon. We're going to hang yeah. out with him. And his better half, who also works on the podcast as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, we, we might have some plans in the future. We'll leave that out in the Ooh, ether. Doo, 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 yeah, there might be a Gone Cold ACNC crossover at some point. That would be really cool. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. Check them out. Um, go to iTunes and go to their Facebook page. Give them five-star reviews. Th- these guys are absolutely excellent, not only with the amount of research and time that they put into this case, the the way that they are advocates for the victims that they cover, but also um, they're just really great people and they do so much for, I think, the community. So check them out. We love them. They're great. Oh my God, we have so many... So many entire announcements we're trying to cram into this episode. We also want to tell you guys, um, as you know, that we ha- we had the um, te- uh, Texas Podocalypse meeting a few weeks back here in Dallas. We are now planning, we as in all of the Texas podcasters that we know of, we're now planning a another meetup in Austin in August of this year. 
We don't know the full details. We're still trying to figure out if we're, if we want to do a bar on 6th Street, if we want to do something that's going to be a little quieter so we can hang out more. It's going to be cool. We don't know. It's going to be cool. It's going to be towards the end of August, probably, you know, 24th, 25th. It's going to be so, fan-centric. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're going to have more crap for you to have. Yeah, come <laughs> out, meet us. Like it. And yeah. Um, yeah, it'll be great. I think that's it. Uh, please stay tuned for Gone Cold's promotion and go check out their podcast as soon as this is over. That would be great. And we love you guys. Have a good week. And as always, guys, remember, crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. Adios. Bye. Gone Cold Podcast, Texas True Crime, explores unsolved homicides and missing persons cases throughout the state of Texas, providing the victims and their families with a voice. The abduction and murder of Carla Walker, Fort Worth's February slayings, including the killing of June Ward, the disappearances of Ali Lowitzer from Spring, and Nicole Garcia of Haltom City, are cases in which the devastated families seek answers as to what happened to their loved ones. Please join us as we attempt to deliver an accurate representation of the victims, as well as a complete and comprehensive examination of the crimes or disappearances. You can find Gone Cold Podcast, Texas True Crime, at Apple Podcasts or virtually wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks, y'all.